Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Hey, everybody. The Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. All episodes of this show are entirely free. There is an Other People app. That, too, is free. Everything's free. So if you like this podcast and you would like to support it, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person. Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome right, to the Other right. People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles for episode 500 of this show. Uh, I feel like, you know, it's a milestone episode, 500 episodes. And I've been thinking about it over the past uh, however many weeks as I, I could kind of see it approaching. And I thought, well, you know, I got to do something. There's got to be some sort of, um, you know, recognition of this milestone. And then it's like, uh, whatever, it's just a number. 500. I got to 500 episodes. I don't know what that says. What does it say about a person when they've done 500 episodes of a podcast? I don't know. <laughs> I guess it could say, I guess that there are different options. You could choose different options. You could choose to see this in different ways. For some reason, I've done 500 episodes of a podcast in my life. They exist on the internet. You can find them. You can listen to them all for free. So to, to those of you who have been with me for the duration, thank you very much. For those of you who have been with me for part of this uh, long journey, I appreciate that too. 500 episodes and counting. I'm very pleased today uh, for my 500th episode to have Clay Byers on the show. Uh, he has a memoir out uh, from FSG Originals. Is that where it's from? I believe that's where it's from. Let me look this up just to make sure. I'm so disorganized. But uh 
Clay Byers, I've never had a guest quite like Clay on this program. Uh, His uh, memoir, Will and I, is about his experience uh, going through a a terrible accident, near-fatal car crash when he was in college as an 18-year-old, followed by a botched uh, surgical procedure and a massive stroke. And uh, he has, over the years, uh, over the past 20 years or so, uh, made a pretty, is it 20 years? Might be almost 30 years. You know, it's been a while. But over the past, you know, several years, he has made a pretty incredible recovery, all things considered, uh, but still deals with uh, disability, uh, physical disability. His, His mental acuity is perfect, but his physical body has been through a lot. And uh, that includes speech. So he, uh, you know, he's done a lot of work, physical therapy, uh, voice lessons, speech therapy, you name it. And uh, I had a chance to talk to him from his home in Alabama, and I'm very grateful for that. His memoir, which is out from FSG Originals, it was published in June of 2016, uh, is one of the best books that I read last year. So as I was trying to think of who I could uh, speak with for my 500th episode, it occurred to me that he would be the perfect guest, not only because I really liked his book, but I think in particular because it speaks to me in such a personal way as a parent, because, uh, you know, some of the things that Clay is going through, even though his, um, you know, his challenges are derived from an accident are similar to what my son is going through, even though my son you know, is only two years old. And so I don't know, it just hit home. And on top of that, you know, one of the, I guess the way that I became aware of Clay as a writer and became aware of his book is that he reached out to me via email and, uh, is a listener of this program. And we sort of went back and forth on email. He shared with me some experiences of his that really resonated. And I thought, you know what, I want to talk to this guy for episode 500 and it worked out. So you're going to hear that conversation in just a moment. Uh, be aware that, you know, it's, we're talking over the transom and uh, Clay's speech is pretty good, uh, all things considered, but it is, um, you know, it w- will require a little bit more concentration, uh, both in terms of audio, because I'm talking to someone over Skype, but also because, um, you know, his speech is a little bit impaired uh, due to his accident. So uh, that's coming up. Otherwise, you know, what do I say about 500 episodes? You know, uh, it's been, I'm trying to, like, I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> it's one of these like arbitrary big round numbers where you feel like you've got to have some grand proclamation to make, but I don't. I'm glad to have done 500 episodes. I feel proud of the library of conversations that I put together and made available to people to listen to. That's about it. And I'm grateful to everybody who listened and, and who continues to listen. And I'm grateful to the guests who have been uh, made themselves available and, and are, you know, have been willing to talk with me. I'm grateful to, uh, to them because without them, obviously, there's no show. It's an ecosystem. Without the listeners, without the guests, you know, it doesn't work. So gratitude to everybody who has participated in this big project over the past, you know, what are we going on, uh, seven years? And I really have no idea where it's going to go from here. It's one week at a time. That's kind of how I view this thing. But uh, I truly do enjoy it. I wouldn't keep going uh, otherwise. wouldn't have uh, accumulated this many episodes if I didn't really enjoy this process and this project and these conversations. So um, 
I did get a, a letter that I want to share with you. A listener named Tyler says, Brad, I love the recent episode with Lauren Haldeman, episode 499. The subject of mindfulness and Buddhism came up naturally, and I love that you pursued that thread. I learned a lot. It sounds like your book is coming along. Uh, coming along. I look forward to reading it someday. On a somewhat related note, I booked a 90-minute sensory deprivation float for this coming week. It was a Christmas gift. I'm kind of afraid, but also excited. Have you done one? Advice? Also, I thought you'd like this detail. The float place is located behind the local Arby's. Best, Tyler. So, Tyler, thanks for writing. Thanks for listening. Uh, I had a great time talking with Lauren Haldeman. And, uh, you know, we got into the Buddhism thing because she's done a lot of uh, mindfulness-based therapy. And she's into meditating like I am. So we have that sort of common thread to go back and forth about. And uh, you're going to hear more about that kind of stuff in the conversation that I have with Clay Byers. Uh, he's also, uh, you know, had some pretty incredible experiences that, uh, are related and has done a lot of reading about Zen and so on and so forth. So he's pretty lucid on the subject, but with regard to the, uh, my book and to, uh, Buddhism and mindfulness, it's funny, you know, I, I'm making progress. I think it's coming along well, and then I'll read something and I'll be like, wow, this is really fucking good the book that I'm writing, like it, it's got a long way to go before it can come, you know, you start to get into a comparison mindset. And then, uh, I was reading a galley for uh, Tao Lin's upcoming book, this book about psychedelics called trip. And, uh, in it, he's talking about Terrence McKenna, uh, of whom I'm a big fan. And McKenna was talking about, cause McKenna was sort of skeptical of the whole Buddhism thing. And, you know, going to India, because he did a little bit of that. He was like over in Nepal and he studied Tibetan, the Tibetan language. And, you know, he was like a hippie in Berkeley in the 60s. So he came into contact with plenty of people who had gone over and found a guru and done that whole thing. And uh, he always sort of mocked it. You know, he was, always, I remember, you know, in a lot of his uh, talks, he would talk about how, you know, you have to like sweep the ashram before you can get the insight. And he sort of saw it as a con, you know, these gurus who would charge you money and have you essentially function as their housekeeper. <laughs> but there was like some line in the book that I was reading in the uh, Tao's book where it was like, you know, but Buddhism is sort of like a flight from psychedelics, which like bring you into contact with like the real deeper reality. And so then I started to doubt myself. I was like, fuck, maybe I should be smoking DMT. Maybe I need to uh, go into the uh, chrysanthemum dome and talk to the dribbling elves or whatever. And, you know, it's like, I'm very susceptible. I feel like I don't have um, like real confidence in my thinking. I feel like that's a fault or is it a fault or is it a, is a positive? I, I waffle back and forth. Like I'm, I'm sort of in awe of people who really know what they think. I'm like, wow, you do, you feel good about that. You're not second guessing yourself. You're not lost in some sort of, uh, you know, eternal gray zone where you're, you're sort of like, well, could be, maybe I'm wrong. That's kind of where I feel like I'm at. You know, I, and, and I guess there are moments where I feel a certain sense of moral clarity or uh, other kinds of clarity, but so much of the time I feel like I'm sort of drifting or uh, in a state of indecision or confusion. But, uh, and this, this is something that I'm hopefully going to write about decently in my uh, book, but it's like, and, and I've, I think I've talked about this. I've, you know, I, I've had this conversation over the years, whether or not it happened on this show, I can't remember, but it's about, uh, like wanting the instructions, 
like this sense of impatience with life. Just, just fucking tell me, just give me the book. Where are the instructions? Write them down. Let me know what they are. I'll do them. Just, just tell me how to do life. How do we get through this? How do we uh, transcend our suffering? How do we deal with whatever, uh, you know, difficult shit comes our way? What do I do? Where is it? Write it down. Can you just give it to me? Can we put this on like a a note card (laughs) or in a book, something podcast? Like I have that sort of impulse. I don't know if anybody else feels that way, but, uh, Buddhism, I think one of my, one of the attractions that I have in Buddhism is that the, it comes as close as anything that I've, uh, found to sort of laying it out like that. It's like the four noble truths, the eightfold noble path. Here are the steps. We're going to try to make this simple. The five mindfulness trainings, you know, there's all these like lists, you know, I think that appeals to like the orderly side of me or like the weird type A side of me, if, if, if that's what it is. And it's all very, you know, it's all relatively practical. It's uh, pretty much divorced from any kind of mythology, which, uh, you know, is another thing that appeals to me. I don't respond at all to uh, spiritual mythology. I mean, occasionally one of these stories will sort of resonate as kind of a fiction with a message or whatever, but that's not what I'm, I'm, I'm after. I want practical instruction for how to deal with human suffering and how to get through life with like grace and uh, dignity and compassion and all that kind of stuff. You know, I want to know how to do life. Not that there's just one way, but you know what I'm saying? So anyway, I bounce around as uh, I'm sure you guys know, and uh, really like talking with Lauren. She's somebody who's been through a lot herself. Like these uh, past couple of episodes, I feel like I've had the uh, privilege of talking with people who have really dealt with some heavy shit and have come through it with uh, a lot of grace. So uh, otherwise, Tyler, your uh, 90-minute sensory deprivation float, it's funny that you write to me about this because I did my one and only sensory deprivation float almost a year to the day uh, from when this episode is going to air. I want to say I did it on inauguration day. I know I did it on inauguration day 2017 when Trump was inaugurated, which I believe was like the 20th of January, something like that. But whatever inauguration day was last year, my buddy, Adam Greenfield and I, uh, Adam was just on the, uh, the holiday episode with me. He and I went and did a a sensory deprivation float over in Westwood. And, uh, I, you know, I was underwhelmed to be honest with you. It's sort of weird, sort of gross. Like people pee in those things (laughs) and you're in there for two hours. You better not have to pee. That's what I would tell you, Tyler. Just don't drink anything before you go in, like give yourself like, you know, go in dehydrated. Otherwise you're going to be in there. It's not, I mean, I guess you could get out, but then you sort of ruin the float. So I remember, I think Adam peed. I did not pee, but I had to pee. So like so much of my time in the float tank was spent like, like lying there in darkness thinking to myself like, Oh, I got to pee. And then the other thing too, is that the water, which is uh, kept at a certain temperature to sort of, you know, it's like sort of like a warm bath, you know, you're sort of like floating in this water. And I think that what they, they want is they want you to feel like, uh, I don't know, like you're in the womb, you know, like temperature shouldn't be a factor. You shouldn't be hot. You shouldn't be cold. But the problem is that once, you know, you're in there for a couple hours, the water temperature changes. It inevitably goes down. So I remember it started to get like a little lukewarm. So then you're sort of cold, you know, it's just enough. 
but you know, like I want, I want to say I listened to like a Joe Rogan podcast and he was talking about like doing mushrooms and going into a sensory float tank. And I guess that's a thing. So if you want to add an element, but if you're claustrophobic at all, or if you have problems with darkness or just, I don't know, man, like uh, when it comes to psychedelics, uh, like they always say what set and setting are important. Like you better be really comfortable in a float tank. Cause I did it sober and I was a little weirded out. I don't think I would have wanted to, uh, to go in there and be under the influence of anything. That sounds like a tall order. Could, that could definitely go sideways quickly. <laughs> it's like you're, it's like climbing into a washing machine. It's like this metal tank, you know, it's fucking odd. So anyways, thanks for writing, Tyler. Appreciate it. If you guys want to email me, the address is letters at other letters at other Hey folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book, but failing, if you're failing to write a book, but wishing you could, if you've written a book, but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career, writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond. Available from Zando. Uh, so Clay Byers is my guest. His memoir, which I read over the holidays when I was like sick with the flu, is called Will and I. It's available from FSG Originals. Uh, Clay is an identical twin. Uh, that's why the book is called Will and I. His twin brother, Will. Uh, was in the car with him when he had this accident, but I, I believe Clay, I, I think I have that right. Or actually, you know what? I have it wrong. And I'm going to be honest with you folks. I just uh, pressed pause and I, I emailed Clay for verification. And he was like, uh, no, Will was in Birmingham when the accident happened. Will was actually asleep when the accident happened and woke up out of a dead sleep right as it was happening. It was, it was like one of those twin things where there was like some sort of, uh, cosmic psychic connection and he he somehow knew so you would think i would remember this having just read the book but of course my recall as i've told you many times is uh really bad and i had the flu when i was reading let me just try to excuse myself a little bit i had the flu i wasn't my normal self somehow i forgot this very pertinent detail here he is ladies and gentlemen this is clay byers when my identical twin brother and i were sophomores at Swanee, in 1992, I was in a uh, car wreck. I was in the back seat of a car. There was a head-on collision with another car. And the other driver died. And 
and I was hurt worse than anybody else in our car because uh, I was thrown in between the two front seats into the dashboard, and so my only all of my injuries healed or were healed in time, except for a pulled or torn nerve in my shoulder, which I had surgery on nine months later down in New Orleans. And uh, the surgery, during the surgery, the uh, surgeon cut my vertebral artery, which a week later threw off a blood clot to my brainstem, and which made me have a massive stroke. So wait, what was the, let me stop you. What was the, the surgeon was performing an operation on you to help you recover motion? Yeah, what they did was they uh, cut from the back of my leg and took out my sural nerve and uh, pieced it there and chopped it up and pieced it into my uh, brachial plexus where with the nerve that had been damaged in the rack to try to regenerate that way. And when they did that, he made a mistake or, like, you know, somehow released a blood clot? Yeah, well, he had, he made a mistake. He got cut my vertebral artery. What is what is that? The, which the, apparently... What is the vertebral artery? Where is that? It apparently runs... Uh, Nearby, I guess, uh, and nearby where he was operating on. In your like the nerves in the in your shoulder, is that correct? Like in your in your when you say right, and then they go back to uh, they attach to uh, to the spine. Got it. And so, so this, and so then, like a few weeks later, or a, well, how long was it between the surgery and when you had the stroke? It was a week. I was back in Birmingham a week later. Yeah, that's a part of the book that I found particularly harrowing, and I'm sure you would you would probably agree, having lived through it, is that you know you're home, you've had this surgery, you're hoping to recover movement uh, in your it was in your arm, correct? In your was it right, your, in my right arm? Your right arm. Okay, so you'd had this surgery because you uh, you know after the accident, it was the right arm that was still giving you trouble, and then you go home and you start to experience. Um, you know, the symptoms of a massive stroke because of this blood clot that had gone up into your brainstem, correct? Correct. And so, but you didn't know what was happening. You were just thinking that, you, that, you know, like, what was, like, describe those moments. You know, well, like I said in the book, I thought that uh, my first thought was that the surgeon had left some instrument inside me because it was, uh, the feeling was uh, unlike anything Anything I'd ever had, nothing organic, like nothing man-made, and nothing I'd ever felt before. So it was what? I mean, you said you 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 thought that he had left some sort of instrument, like surgical instrument, inside he, your body. He, right. God. I mean that. And and. Idiotic, that means. So and and not to I, I hate to jump around in time, but I want to make sure people, um, you know, listening. Uh, understand, you know, you talked a little bit about the accident, um, which was a horrific car accident uh, that took the life of the other driver. But uh, was there was there alcohol involved? What what was that? It was just an it was a driver error, correct? Like there was a two lane road, right? It was, the, and like I said in the book, the uh, I was told the uh, 
other driver wasn't wearing a shirt. So I think she may have been changing and uh, just uh, swerved over into our lane. Okay. So like, who changes their shirt while driving? I mean, that's just, I guess people do sometimes. But... I mean, it was some local, I guess. She knew, knew the roads or, you know, growing up there. Right, right. So, okay, so you then are having this stroke. Um, the symptoms are, are coming on a week after this surgery. And, um, you know, I get you called out for help. I mean, you, you, you knew something was seriously wrong. You just didn't know quite what. Right, so if I, I called 911. I mean, after, because uh, these were like waves of intense uh, dizziness, like, I mean, they would just throw me completely off balance. Uh, would come every once in a while, and then uh, I think it was the third time that I was like, I didn't want to steal my fate by calling 911, but I was like, something is wrong. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I did. So, and, and prior to this surgery, uh, and prior to having this stroke, you know, you had successfully overcome... Um, a bunch of serious injuries from this accident. You know what I'm saying? Like, as bad as the accident was, you had made a pretty remarkable recovery. Yeah, yeah. When, and, I mean, either on its own, either my injuries healed on its own, or I had surgery for the, for the injuries. What were the injuries? Like, you had, you had broken some bones, obviously, um, but like along with your your right arm and that that particular injury, like what else? What? I had some ocular some ocular nerve damage. I had to wear an eye patch for a while. Um, a carotid artery fistula, which is a tear, uh, which is probably the most serious. Um, let's see what else? Uh, a broken jaw. I had to. My jaw had to be wired shut for uh, like six weeks, uh, and that, I mean that sucked. God, man. Um, so okay, so then um, you know the 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 stroke happens. Like fortunately, you called nine one one, and they had emergency medical come and tend to you. But you were in very grave condition. Uh, doctors didn't think that you were going to survive. Correct. Right, right. There, I mean, that's when they told my parents. At first, I was going to die, and then when I didn't, that I would be uh, paralyzed from my eyes down. Have you ever seen the movie uh, Diving Bell and Butterfly? No, but I'm familiar with it. I'm familiar with the uh, the storyline. Well, it's that same condition they got. I think he, he died like right after the book was published. But uh, it was the uh, same condition. Same, same, same kind of stroke, like same blood clot to the brainstem. Yeah, yeah. Except that, I mean, I came out of it like he, he dictated the whole book through, through like blinking his eyes and his nurse or someone would transcribe it. So why do you think you survived? Do you have any sense of why? Uh, I know. I mean. Uh, I mean, I, like all these hypotheticals uh, of maybe like, because I was a twin, growing up a twin, I felt like I'd always been more than myself, so it was easier for me to let go of all this, but I still didn't answer why I survived. 
I have no idea, man. Yeah, I mean that's a th- I mean that's an important po- part of your life and your story uh, and the story that you tell in this book. I mean, it's called Will and I. You are are you an ident- right. are you is it an identical twin or fraternal twin? Identical. So you have an you have an identical twin uh, brother named Will, and uh, that's like you know that's a unique experience. I grew up with uh, close friends, uh, female, who are identical twins, and you know remain close with them to this day, and got to witness uh, you know at close range what their relationship is like, and it's a it's a different kind of bond than than just about any other human bond there's something special about twins in terms of how they interact and well, i think in the book how uh, i'm gonna discuss different types of twins how it, uh, for male male identical twins uh, i guess i just identical in general at one point it's one zygote so i mean like we were literally you know one person at one time and then you split off and you know it's got to right. it's got to be you know to have an identical twin and to ha- and to be you know in Will's uh, situation to have an identical twin brother who goes through uh, the kind of health crisis that you've been through and to have to witness that and to have to uh, I don't know I guess it's it would be difficult w- for anyone to see a family member of any kind go through it but to have your identical twin brother. Um, experience this particular fate while you remain uh, healthy. It's got to be a, a head trip. Yeah, it's. Uh, I talk about that also in the book. I, I really can't imagine it, but uh, I think it's the helplessness. I'm sure. Yeah. So you're in the hospital, and um, the prognosis is is grim the doctors don't think you're going to survive but then you start to make uh, a recovery and when did when did things begin to turn like when did it you know at what point was it uh did things shift from you know we don't think he's going to survive to to actually we think he will like he we think he's he's making a miraculous recovery well i think uh i mean after i didn't die they uh they said, you know, that I would be paralyzed. And then, I guess, I don't know how long later. It wasn't long before uh, I began moving nothing. I could lift my right leg off the bed. And then, as far as I was concerned, then once I had any movement of any sort, I wasn't letting that go. And is this uh, is this neuroplasticity? Because when you when you have a stroke, uh, a stroke causes uh, what is it? A brain bleed? Is that the correct characterization of what? It- I mean, I think my stroke was it wasn't a typical kind because it it mine uh, it didn't affect the hemispheres of my brain. It was just the brain stem which controls the motor function. Uh huh. So not not cognition. So I mean, that's that's why I knew what was going on, but I still had to find another way to do things. Right. I mean, yeah, you you sort of speak to this as well in the book about having you know like your cognitive your cognition was like a hundred percent there, which in some ways was kind of painful, you know, because like you're completely aware of everything that's going on. Um, you have right. you have all of your wits about you, and so you can obviously 
um, you know, you you have a full understanding of what you're up against. I mean, at first I was just, like I said, I didn't think any of it was real. And then I was just like, whatever, just, I, I just don't want to, if I could, like I said in the book, if, if it was possible at that time, uh, I still think this, that if I could have turned myself off, I would have. No question about it. You were you would have you would have preferred to have died back then. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, I, mean, I mean, not now, but I'm saying at the time. Sure. What? Because uh, like, I mean, I think maybe uh, it would be good for listeners to like learn a little bit about how you and I got in touch because uh, you and I have traded emails prior to this conversation, and um, in particular. You know, uh, you know, you told me about an experience you had when you were in the hospital, when things were pretty bleak, where you you kind of had this, uh, and I'm I'm going to probably misquote you here, but it was like this, um, it's kind of satori uh, to use a Buddhist term, or flash of liberating insight, or this kind of. Um, I called it a uh, flash of liberating brilliance at first, before I read anything about it, and then. Uh, when I uh, after I graduated from college, I uh, when I discovered Zen Buddhism and uh, the Satori experience, the more I read about it, it's uh, it's the same experience, just it's brought about I guess di- differently in Zen. But uh, it was uh, it's that kind of feeling when. Uh, Basically, I'd always felt, being an identical twin, I'd always felt that I was more than myself. But uh, after this experience, it was kind of confirmation of that. It's like I was, this experience was, kind of had me tuned in to everything. I was part of everything around me. So you're lying, you're lying, you're lying there in your hospital bed. You are in a state of paralysis, correct, or at least partial paralysis. Right. And at that point, all I could move was my my eyes. And so you're thinking, like, this is it. I can only move my eyes, and I'm sort of trapped, uh, motionless. And was there something in particular that brought it on, or were you just in a state of despair? No, like I said, it just came. Basically, it seemed to come out of nowhere. Uh, uh, I think they just run some tests, but I said that uh, there's that Alan Watts quote that about surrendering, about completely surrendering. I think it was only then when uh, when I could completely surrender, like when, because I couldn't kill myself, so it was like when I gave up the desire to live or to die. Yeah, because it's interesting. You hear the the word surrender in uh, spiritual contexts, you know, like there's a moment of surrender or that, you know, full spiritual uh, realization or whatever you want to call it requires some level of surrender. And I think that that term can be confusing to people because it's like, well, what does that mean? You know what I'm saying? Like, because I think a lot of times surrender carries like a negative connotation. I think a lot of people look at it as giving up and that's still, 
you know, that's still you giving, and giving something. It's basically taking yourself out of the equation, which so, I think is hard for a lot of people to fathom. But that's like that's what you arrived at, like the insight. I mean, like like you've said a couple times, you know, having an identical twin maybe brings it home and makes it realer than it would be um, for for the rest of us. You know, that you are more than yourself. But uh, you feel you felt in this moment in the hospital that you were you really felt like a, a uh, palpable sense of connection t- to everything. Correct. Like I said in the book, it, uh, even as bad, I mean, the condition I was in, it, at that moment, it occurred to me that uh, it wasn't like everything was going to be okay. Everything was okay. Regardless of the of circumstance. Exactly. Did you, were you able to hold on to that? Like, you know, like, do you feel like that's something, the, the, the peace and the sense of connection that you experienced in those moments, it, it, do you carry that with you? Do you carry part of it with you? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, completely. Just not, I mean, not to the extent that I, that I felt then, but, um, yeah, it doesn't leave you. I mean, the uh, Zen scholar D.T. Suzuki talking about Satori, he said, uh, Satori is just like uh, normal everyday experience, except two inches off the ground. You know, but it, it, it occurs to me because I've never had one of these experiences. I haven't had that, that feeling, you know, like a, in, a, in a really deep way. But it, it seems to be often the case, at least, that you have to be in some sort of state of extreme suffering uh, in order to reach that state of surrender, which is kind of a bummer. It's like, God, well, that's what it takes. You know, <laughs> like uh, you would hope that you would be able to get there without having to uh, go through something really, really difficult. But it seems like that's often the case. Yeah, I think so. it is often the case, but it's not, I don't think that's necessary. I mean, no. Uh, you know, judging from all the Zen scholars who've had the some form of the same experience, and there's a there used to be a a Netflix documentary called With One Voice that's uh, it's mainly a different religious practice uh, about this about this same experience. Uh, and there's none of those people were were in this condition of of you know physically of being being so reduced. Yeah, I was going to say it. Like it's not like uh, this this experience of satori or epiphany or this flash of liberating brilliance or whatever you want to call it is not exclusive to um, Buddhists or quasi Buddhists. Like this, you know, this cuts across all sorts of different traditions oh yeah yeah you know so it's just uh it, it's it's part of the human experience but it just like it's hard to sort of english it it's hard to get a you know it's it's hard to find words for what you go through and it seems like maybe buddhism uh at least for from my perspective like has made a clearer attempt um you know then i don't know i don't know it seems like there's language for it there in play and i haven't been able to find yeah, it yeah well everything 
That's why I was attracted to Zen, because everything in Zen revolves around this experience. It, so when did when, when did you get to like so you, you had this experience and then you started to read about Zen or had you dabbled like didn't you dabble in a little no, bit? No, no. I started. I had this experience and then I read about Zen. Uh, I guess it was after I went back. I mean, after I graduated from college, went back and graduated. So four years maybe. Okay, so four years later, you started reading about it, and then found, like, basically a uh, a language for the experience that you had had. Right, it transcends religion. I mean, it's not exclusive to Buddhism. There, there's a quote from uh, Meister Eckhart from it was a medieval uh, Christian mystic, and he said. Uh, uh, regarding this matter, a heathen sage has a fine saying in speech with another sage. I perceive of something basically that flashes across my mind. But what it is I cannot perceive. Only me seems that if I could conceive it, I would comprehend all truths. Yeah, because this is something that I've, I think about sometimes when I think about uh, people like the Buddha, like any kind of really uh, a person who has purported, purportedly realized some deep spiritual insight and has sort of uh, achieved, uh, I don't know, what do you call it? Contact with deepest truth or whatever, deepest reality. And... I think about my own, like, you know, small neurotic mind and all the questions I have about so many different things, uh, you know, confusions. And I don't understand, like, when these people have these experiences, whether it's Meister Eckhart or it's you or it's the Buddha or whatever, uh, like, what happens to all those confusions? Like, you know what I'm saying? That, that do you, you can't possibly have, like, intellectual mastery of everything. Um like, no, no. In, in that moment, they, and, you know, they, they go away. It doesn't matter. But I've seen the more the more time I spend, uh, you know, like in public and with with its concerns, the more that that just leaks in because that's the way humans operate. So wait, I'm not sure I understand. You mean the more that you spend time, like sort of with uh, civilians, <laughs> or uh, you know, just uh, in contact with other human beings, like the more that confusion leaks in? Right, right. I mean, you know, it's, it gets it gets old just being by yourself. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and you you spend a lot of time by yourself living out there in the country, right? Right. But that's got to be good for writing. I mean, you you kind of live sort of like a. Yeah, a monkish contemplative life. Right. I guess just now that uh, I've been out here for so long, it's a change of scenery would be nice. Yeah. Do you, how, like, how often do you see people? Like, do you see people every day or they're like straight? I go in town. Uh, I still, uh, but another part of my book is uh, about uh, the voice lessons that was, I started taking in. 2008, 2007, 8, uh, with an opera singer to basically to uh, be able to speak better. 
and uh, and I still do those. Uh, I still see him once a week, so I go in for that, and uh, I go over whenever I'm in town. I eat dinner over at my brother and sister-in-law's house. So they live nearby, right? So what about these lessons? Like, because uh, you know, if, if the accident was in 1992. You didn't start the the opera singing lessons until you said 2008? Right, I mean, because I've been to different speech therapists over the years. And uh, I guess my, my father died in 2007. So after he died, I was I went to another speech therapist because I hadn't seen one in a while. And he, uh, he was the one that suggested singing lessons, which... Through my brother-in-law, who's a uh, musically talented uh, and used to sing in operas, led me to to Dwayne this guy. And so, do you sing? Like, is that what he has you do? Like, what does he have you do? Yeah, I mean, they're singing it. It's uh, yeah, like what he says. Most of the people he sees are, are singers, either aspiring or professional, and. Uh, the exercises that I do are the same that he does for them. I mean, uh, only rarely do we actually sing complete songs, but it's like little snippets of of uh, different words, and it's just, I guess, different parts. They work out different parts of the voice. Oh, and so... Uh you, you grew up in Alabama. Correct. And can you tell me a little bit, like, what was your childhood like there? Um, it was, uh, I, I couldn't imagine, it was, uh, I couldn't imagine anything different, but it was, uh, it was very comfortable. Like, uh, the community that I, that I grew up in is, uh, it was it was like a very socially uh, concerned. It was it's a it's really an old community. It's kind of, everybody kind of knows one another, and everybody's in in each other's business. That kind of thing. Like what what was the community? It's just Birmingham, or is it a part of Birmingham in particular? It's, it's part of Birmingham. It's called Mountain Brook. Oh, okay. So you, but I mean, at least you have like you had like a pretty strong social network. Oh yeah, yeah. And what did your folks do? Like you, you mentioned your dad um, passed away, but what, what was his? Uh, what did he do with his life and career? He, uh, I say in the book, he uh, he had uh, a polio was an infant, so he was uh, his back was hunched and his uh, left leg was a little bit shorter than his right. But uh, despite all that, he was a really good athlete. And uh, anyway, he worked his way up from. He did all these different things after uh, after college. But he worked his way up to he ended up buying a mortgage banking company. And uh, I guess he sold that right before he died. So he's like a real estate so, guy. Right. Correct. And then, what about your mom? Commercial. Yeah, housewife. Okay, and then you had but your. She worked for him. 
And you had you and you have your twin brother Will, and you have uh, another sibling. An older sister. An older sister. Okay. Uh, so, and then you, when you got to Sewanee as a freshman before the accident, did, did you have an inclination that you were going to be uh, a writer? Like, was that something that was on your radar? No, no. I wasn't even an English major. I was, I was an English minor. I had enough credits to be an English minor. But, uh, I was a philosophy major. I wasn't even thinking in, in terms of, of writing at all. So, and then, but after the accident, obviously something shifted. I mean, you... Right, when I went back to Swanee after the stroke, uh, I took an independent study with Wyatt Priney, who's the uh, director of the Swanee Writers Conference. Uh, and I guess it was through him that uh, I learned uh, all the fundamentals and also that, you know, that I could do this. It was, it gave me, at the time, you know, because I was, I was still pretty, I mean, physically, or still am physically, uh, you know, incapacitated. But it gave me so, really a sense of freedom that I couldn't find anywhere else. So, yeah, so you, I mean, how how long after you had had the stroke... Uh, and were, you know, like in bed thinking, like for a while at least, that you were going to be paralyzed. How long between that time and when you returned to college? Uh, nah. Looking back, it was pretty quick. It was um, probably a year and a half. After once I began moving, I was in the a rehab hospital for six months. And... Uh, then I moved home, and I still went to outpatient rehab, but I went back, uh, I guess I moved home in December of 93, and then uh, I started back at Swanee in the fall of 94. And so, and what was your, what was your uh, physical ability at that point in terms of getting around? I could walk not very well, uh, and, you know, and talk not very well, but uh, I was, I, I mean, I think I was just, it was like a little kid, like, I'm okay, I'm okay. I was just determined that I wasn't going to just sit around and do nothing. Well, I mean, I think that that's, uh, and I, I think you speak a little bit about this in the book, and uh, it sort of made me open my eyes a bit, but when people are dealing with disabilities, I think that there can often be a tendency among those around them to want them to not do much, or to rest, or to take it easy, uh, do you know what I'm saying? Or, or, to th- or to imagine that that's what you would want, but the truth is that you were like raring to go, you're like, I want to get back into my life. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, of course, I can only hypothesize of why why people would be like that. But right, it all comes back to to yourself eventually. So, I mean, it's, it's like you said, what they they think they would want. 
people have a hard time, I think, dealing with uh, like like the emotional experience of um, being confronted with physical disability or mental disability or any kind of like malady. You know what I'm saying? I think when we're confronted with these things, it forces us to confront uh, the unpleasant reality of uh, our own inevitable um, you know, it's mortality, it's our physical decline that comes with aging, it's all of these things. Uh, do you find yourself ever getting impatient with people? Like, do you find yourself uh, angry with people's inability to um, process? Um, I think I used to. Uh, I don't as much anymore. As, just because I'm, uh, I'm not around people as much. But do you think that the fact so, that, yeah, I mean, do you think that the fact that you're, I mean, did you make the choice to maybe live out in the country and to live a more secluded life in an effort to avoid having to deal with that or to, to just like, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. To some, uh, some degree. Yes. I mean, I, you know, I speak to this in the book too. Speaking of, uh, being an identical twin and that it's, it was kind of a catch-22 because I knew that he saw me for me the same, you know, as he always had. So I figured that everybody would. And it's just kind of, uh, I noticed after a while just that I got tired of always having to uh, kind of to explain myself or to break even, basically. Right. That gets exhausting. I can, I can only rise so far. Uh, what about, you know, because uh, we, we spoke earlier about the spiritual experience you had when you were uh, in the hospital, which uh, is unique. But, you know, there's also along the way, when it comes to recovering from uh, traumatic injury and having to go through countless hours of rehabilitation and having to just on a daily basis, you know, uh, confront and accept the limitations of your body, you know, and what it can and cannot do. Uh, there have to have been times or, or there have to maybe still be times where you struggle with like depression or uh, anger. Like, are these things that you feel like you've got a handle on? Like, is, is it a daily battle or do you feel like you've, you sort of gotten past it. No, no, it's definitely it's a daily battle, but uh, I don't have a complete handle on. But I think maybe through my dad having uh, having polio, and yeah, that uh, I mean, I knew even before this happened. No matter what, what what you do, as long as you feel like a victim of anything. You uh, you can't get past it. Yeah, I mean, I think like the you wrote me an email um, because my son was born with some disabilities, and we're working through that. So I'm seeing this like f through the eyes of a dad, you know. So I I, re I I think about your your dad and your parents, and um, you know, having a child, you know, go through something like this. I can relate a lot to. Feelings of anger, feelings of uh, devastation, feelings of concern. Uh, but 
you know, I think when you uh, wrote to me, you spoke a bit about anger, which, uh, you know, hit home with me because I struggle with that. You know, it's, it's hard not to be pissed off as a parent when a fate like this befalls your child. And I, yeah, I, mean, I can only imagine you've got to feel responsible at some point. Yeah, I, I absolutely do. And not only responsible for the reality of his condition, but also responsible for um, whatever efforts can be made under the sun to try to help him recover, you know, and, and to experience, you know, I mean, because, you know, within the context of your injuries and experiences, you've made a pretty miraculous recovery, you know, that not many people in similar situation would have made. And so I'm hoping to help him beat the odds in the same way. And I don't know. It's like, it's like trying. I feel like it every day is a battle to try to, uh, like grapple with that darkness and to try to find a way to make sure that it doesn't get the best of me, not only for my own health and well-being, but especially, um, so that I can function to the best of my ability as a parent, you know, it, it seems like a, it's like I've been, it's, yeah. it's, it feels like a big challenge, you know, like a big spiritual challenge. Like, man, I've got to really, I've got to really find a way, you know, to get wise and I'm trying my best, but you know, some days it, it gets the better of me. And, uh, I guess you just, you don't know, you just got to keep getting up and keep trying. And hopefully over time you chip away at it. Right, I mean, at least you know that it's, it's not about you. It's not just about you. You know, they may hit home with you. It's, it's because of him that you're like this. There are people, I feel like, who have particularly difficult... They have a particularly difficult ride in life, or they have, you know, for whatever reason, like you've been hit with these um, very big challenges, and... Uh, to some extent, I guess I've been hit with some, my son especially has been hit with some. Uh, and then there are people who it doesn't seem, they don't seem to get touched as much by whatever you want to call it. Difficulty, darkness, you know, I don't know how to make sense of that. Is it, is it arbitrary? I mean, you know, like, have, do you feel ever, do you ever feel like you were, there's some reason for it or does it just feel like, well, this is the way the cards fell? Is there any, is there any, uh, is there anything in control of this life of ours, or is it just our, you know? Yeah, you know, I figured out uh, early on, too, that uh, comparing yourself to other people is just uh, a recipe for, for mania, for going crazy. Right. So, <laughs> as far as, like, why me and not some, somebody else, it's, my life think uh, because I can handle it. And even though it sucks at times, a lot of times, it's, uh, I mean, I'm still here. It's not the end. Right. So you think that it happened to you because you have, for whatever reason, the capacity to handle it? That's how you make sense of it? Right. I mean, I've said before that what happened to me had to happen to somebody. You know, I had everything going for me going in. Like, growing up with my my father... And being an identical twin, like uh, I had the tools. What and you mean growing up with your father? The fact that he had struggled through polio and 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 you had him as an right, example. He was, yeah, he was, uh, he was deformed. 
I mean, pretty severely deformed. Uh, but he was, uh, you know, but he never let that get to him. He always, I remember he always used to say, uh, uh, what was this? Wish in one hand and shit in the other and see which one gets pulled the quickest. Wait, what does it say it again? Wish in one hand and shit in the other and see which one gets pulled the quickest. I'm not even sure I quite understand. Wish in one hand and shit in the other and see which one gets full the quickest? Yeah, it's like, you know, if you... I wish that this hadn't happened. I wish something, you know, wasn't like this. Well, it is, and so what are you going to do about it? Right. And and you can't let yourself feel like a victim, or you can't identify that way. Exactly. So do you have, uh, like, do you have, like, a defined uh, spiritual, like, sense of spiritual identity at this point? I mean, it kind of feels like you dabble in a lot of different things, and you sort of use Zen as a way of helping you um, find language for your experience. But it, it's, are, are you also a practitioner, or is it just uh, you're somebody who's interested? Um, in I'm just interested. I'm, I don't practice anything. You don't? Okay. Uh, do you read about this kind of stuff? Like, what Like, what do you read? Uh, I read everything. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, read, I haven't read uh, much Zen lately, but uh, I did for, for a while. And you, but, and, uh, you're, and you were a philosophy major, too, so, like, you have that sort of bent. Right, and then I guess after I graduated... It was more Eastern philosophy, Taoism, and, and Zen. But uh, most of the stuff I read now is uh, literary, uh, novels, uh, short stories. I think Chekhov is probably my favorite writer. Why is that? Because I think he uh, he understands the. Uh, the whole experience, like, whole experience of being more than yourself. But, uh, you know, he was, I think his, his, uh, own ego held him back, but he was completely aware of this. So, let, let, let's, I want to talk, I want to hear you talk a little bit more about what, like, for someone who has been through what you've been through and who is dealing with, uh, physical disabilities. Uh, and who, you know, your ability to, uh, communicate at least, uh, for a good while was pretty severely compromised in terms of, you know, speech. So, uh, you know, you, you said earlier that writing for you when you got back to Sewanee and went to college became this very liberating experience, which makes a lot of sense to me. Like if you're, uh, you're having trouble communicating, but you still have like all of your wits about you, it must've been a refuge for you to be able to sit down and, and put things down on paper, like unencumbered. Right, I mean, from, from the day uh, I began moving again, that was, uh, you know, it was the only way I could communicate, like, unhindered. And uh, so it just grew from that. And You've... then being able to tell stories was, uh, was just freeing because it was, Making sense of of just the world. 
and getting to play i mean do you like do, is your fiction and forgive me i have i've only read the memoir so i haven't read the fiction is your fiction uh pretty autobiographical or do you do you step outside of your own experience and i, st- I mean uh, I, I step outside my own experience but there's you know, always some of my experience in there, but it's—I uh, guess it's pretty closely rooted, at least so far, to uh, my own experience or stories that uh, I know of. Do you prefer fiction to nonfiction? I—that's usually what I read, but also. Uh, in preparing for this uh, this book, of, again, I don't know how many memoirs I read. So, but memoir is pretty close to fiction itself. Like, do you have like an excellent recall? Like, is that something you've always had, or did you have to really dig deep? Because I find sometimes, like, you know, I can say to myself, like, oh, I don't remember. But if I sit there a while with it and I really go deeply back into my mind. You can start to root around, you know, and you can start to find stuff. Like, was that the process for you? Was it, was it, uh, did it come easily or was it really grueling to sort of do this memory work? It was grueling, but also, uh, I mean, cathartic. And, and then basically that's, uh, you know, it's, I think from the first time I started writing about this until the book I published, it was 20 years. So I had a long time to, go over and over this. How many drafts did you write? Did you like attempt to write this memoir and, and have like failures with it? Or did you, did you just... Oh, fi- yeah, I, I tried to make a novel first. Uh, and I knew that didn't work. Uh, uh, I guess because at the time, that some of the story hasn't been lived. But as a memoir... I don't know if I told you or if I talk about it. I, uh, in 2014, well, I actually go back to 2009, I started the, uh, uh, writer the Swanee Master's Program, and, uh, John Jeremiah Sullivan, who's, uh, who was an undergrad with me, was teaching me at the time. And really, he's probably one of the main reasons I went, just so I would know somebody there. And then in 2014, he's, uh, at his urging, uh, one of my dogs and I moved over to, uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, where he lives, uh, for three months. And, uh, I edited the book with him. And the manuscript I took over there, it was it was a complete manuscript, but it was uh, it was eighty pages longer than the book ended up being. So uh, we compressed a lot. So he worked with you to edit it, right? Every afternoon. Wow, yeah, because I I read uh, John Jeremiah Sullivan. I read uh, Pulphead. He's very impressive. He's he's a really good nonfiction oh, yeah, writer. Yeah. Like I said, uh, I told him in an interview, he's as good an editor as he is a writer. So, and uh, I guess because we know each other so long, that uh, he didn't have a problem with saying, you know, this this needs to go, or 
and I didn't have any problems, you know, uh, there was, there was, there was a lot of back and forth that I don't think I could have done with anybody but him. Was there, like, when you look back on the editorial process with him and and the, the 80 pages that you wound up cutting from the manuscript, was there, like, a common theme to the kinds of things that you wound up cutting? Well, one of the things that that uh, we cut was uh, a lot of dialogue uh, that I like seeing their individual scenes that uh, that were more episodic, more like a novel than than like than a memoir. Yeah, it's like funny um, when I'm reading a memoir and I'm reading dialogue. That's always one of the parts where I'm like, well. I mean, I guess you recall. It's just the the writer's recollection, and so you sort of right. a, you sort of allow for the you know you sort of allow for a little bit of creative license. But yeah, you know, very few people can actually remember full con- anything resembling a full conversation, especially over years. Right, I do have uh, in the memoir when I it's divided up in sections of uh, of my the voice lessons that started uh, in two thousand eight. But I do have uh, full conversations in those sections because I've uh, I've got recordings of every lesson, so uh, I mean they were they exactly what was on the CD. Oh, really? So you got to use the you used the recordings and just transcribed them, right? So uh, what are you working on now? Uh, I've just uh, I completed a, uh, another essay of. Uh, a longish essay, but about more about the dogs, about uh, my life. Even though they're in the book, uh, just about yeah, my life with them, and uh, and it kind of overlaps with getting my book published, and which I don't talk about in the book uh, about going over to Wilmington. And then Daisy died, I guess, in a month, uh, exactly a month after I sold the book. Uh, do you do you have plans to get, an, like, another dog? I mean, I know, like, I'm... Uh, yeah, I've, yeah I've, I've, I've just been kind of putting it off, which I don't know why. I guess because there's other dogs uh, that I, for so long, kind of adopted me. Right. So... Yeah, I've, I've yeah. we had another dog. Uh, we had a French bulldog named Walter who died this past spring. He choked on a bagel, and uh, just like this random accident. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, you sort of feel like oh, I'm going to take a break. You know, we'll wait a little while, see how things go, and then and then I find myself uh, during the workday, like I've got an app now where I'm like scanning through dog rescues and. I wound up reach. I found a dog this week and reached out to the shelter, thinking like I'm going to do this. Like I got to have this dog. Like for some reason, I looked at the picture and I was like, "This is my dog." And then apparently, someone else had beat me to the punch. So I guess it's not my dog. But as more time goes on, I definitely miss having a dog. Yeah, they add something. They add way. You know, like it's a lot of it's a lot of work, but they they give way more than they take. Definitely. Well, I, it's uh, it's great to get a chance to talk with you, man. And uh, I, I gotta say, I gotta say again how much I enjoyed reading your book and how much inspiration um, 
I get from you and from what you've been able to overcome and uh, the fact that you were able to take all that you've been through and to create such a um, an incredible work of art, you know, uh, from those experiences. So I salute you and uh, I wish you well. Well, thank you. Um, I very much appreciate uh, you doing this. I was being on here. All right, folks, there you go. That is Clay Byers. His memoir is called Will and I. It's available now from FSG Originals. Will and I. Go get your copy right now. If you want to find Clay on the Internet, just go to uh, claybyers.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. As a matter of uh, technicality, I should mention that the music at the very top of the show, underneath uh, the ad spot, is actually Curtis Mayfield. That's not Kill Rockstars. I've started playing a little music underneath the ad spot just to add some variety. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. If you would like the Other People app, that is free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. So 500 episodes in the books. Almost seven years of uh, podcasting. It's strange to think of all this content, all these podcasts, all of this written material on the internet. It's all just going to stay there, right? Or, or like most of it, a lot of it. And if, it, if it's not there, then it's going to live on people's hard drives or their devices or whatever, you know, what have you. I find that unusual to think about. I find, uh, like, I find the process of uh, history or at least the ability to research history looking forward to be uh, somewhat terrifying in terms of scale, but also tantalizing in terms of access process. Does that make sense? Like, let's say 300 years from now, you want to find out what it was like in the 21st century. You're going to have access to quite a bit of information, just about anything you could possibly want outside of time travel, though maybe that will exist. If you're listening to this program 500 years from now, <laughs> hello. I've been cryogenically frozen. Please remove me from uh, my deep freeze. Bring me back so I can start podcasting again. Okay.